I have memories of a few Helsing family meetings growing up as a child when my mom and dad would sit us four kids down on the two plaid couches in the family room, and we had to do business together. Oftentimes, it was rooted in our collective bad behavior and or bad attitudes, and so we had gotten sideways with mom and dad, and we had to seek to make things right, so we had a family meeting. These meetings didn't happen often, but when they did, they were impactful. They worked to promote the health of the family. Throughout Christian history, bodies of believers have gathered to do business with one another. They've gathered to do the difficult, uncomfortable, but essential work of pressing into hard issues, seeking to make things right, seeking to guard the church both in its gospel purity and its gospel unity. Working hard, making every effort to preserve gospel purity and gospel unity. This morning, I want to explore with you one of the first family meetings of the early church, the Jerusalem Council, where people got together in person to work towards gospel purity and gospel unity. There was a doctrinal issue that arose in the life of the church, and it had an impact on that family's unity. And so they make every effort to get together and to do the hard work, the uncomfortable work of pressing in and gaining clarity. So let's turn together in our Bibles to Acts chapter 15. In the Bibles we've provided on your chairs, you can find Acts 15 on page 923. Page 923, we're continuing this morning in a series in the book of Acts. Our goal is to preach through the entirety of the book in one calendar year, so we're about at the halfway, just just beyond the halfway mark. And so this morning, Acts 15, I'll read verses 1 through 21. Uh, the, The series title is Church on Mission, and this morning we see something that threatens its mission. Church on Mission, Acts 15, verses 1 through 21. Luke is the author here, and he writes... But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did us. 
And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and for what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So this passage stresses this central idea. It takes tremendous effort to guard gospel purity and gospel unity. It takes tremendous effort. That's what we see unfolding here in Acts 15. They're making every effort to guard the purity of the gospel and their unity in the gospel. Tremendous effort to guard gospel purity and gospel unity. Well, this passage unfolds in four movements, and I'm going to walk through those four movements with you this morning. Here's the first movement. Controversy. Controversy. See this in Acts 15, verses 1 through 8. Some men evidently come down from Judea. That's not a north, south, east, and west directional. It's an elevation. Jerusalem, Judea was on a hill, and when you went anywhere else, you went down the hill somewhere else. And so they're going down the hill, but moving north to Antioch, where Paul and Barnabas are. They came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised... According to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Embedded in the hearts and minds of these zealous Jewish Christians was the prior priority of following the law of Moses. Now, much is lost on us. It's easy for us to kind of point the finger at these legalists because we have two millennia of reading the New Testament, books like Galatians that rail against these people that are oftentimes called Judaizers that advocate this. This is what, this is what they're advocating. In order to become a Christian, you have to become a Jew first. So they didn't have a problem with these Gentiles becoming Christians they just had a problem with the route by which they did so. You needed to become Jewish first, get circumcised, the sign of the covenant community, and then become a Christian. Well, Paul and Barnabas, they're going to go to bat. They're going to fight for that one. 
But we, we, this can get lost on us. What was the thinking behind these pharisaical group, the circumcision party? They were zealous people. They wanted to be faithful, as faithful as they could be. They believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but he was a Jewish Messiah. He had come to fulfill the law and the prophets. They believed in the word of God. And at that time, do you know what the word of God was for them? What was their Bible? The Old Testament. That's what, that's what was read, and they would expound Christ, the early church, their Bible. Some letters and some of Jesus' teachings were circulating, but they'd not yet been codified. And you know, it, Their Bible was the Old Testament, so they're reading these Mosaic laws all the time. And if someone was not careful to help them preach Christ from it, They can be lost as to how to interpret it. But they're zealous. They want to do what's right. They want to follow the Lord's command. So in their minds, how could a person claim to accept Jesus and the Father who sent him, who also sent the prophets, while refusing to listen to the other things that he commanded in the Old Testament? That was what was going on in their minds. And you can understand how this could be thorny for them. So they were okay with the Gentiles being included in the church, but they wanted them to become Jewish first. That's the crux of the issue. That's the issue. The issue created controversy. Verse 2, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders there about this question. So being sent on their way, They pass through Phoenicia and Samaria. So they're in Antioch. They're working their way south through Phoenicia and ultimately Samaria to Jerusalem. And as they go, they're describing to the Christians in each of those areas that God is saving Gentiles. And how do those, most of those Christians respond what? With great joy. So Luke is careful to mention the joy of other Christians, the brothers, that is brethren, men and women, people rejoicing in the inclusion of the Gentiles in God's saving work. So not all of them were opposed to what was going on. Not all of the Jewish Christians were advocating circumcision, becoming Jews first. There's genuine joy, and Luke is careful to tell us. Yet when they reached Jerusalem, the controversy continues, doesn't it? When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers... These are Christians from a Jewish background who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. We talked about how embedded the law of Moses was in the hearts and minds of this Pharisee group, the circumcision party as it was called. Now let's consider the thinking of Paul and Barnabas and others who were advocating the Gentiles did not have to be circumcised. Why was this such an issue for Paul and Barnabas? Why were they so adamant about this, willing to go down to Jerusalem for this family meeting to talk this out? Well, what's going on in Paul and Barnabas' mind? Friends, at the end of the day, it's a gospel issue. It's a gospel issue. It was a hill that they were willing to die on because it was such an important issue. You see, what these Judaizers or the circumcision party, they're all the same group. What they're advocating is a gospel plus theology, a gospel and some of your own efforts and some of your own 
driven, self-driven morality. It's a gospel plus theology, and anytime you add to the gospel or subtract from the gospel, you empty the gospel. So by adding to it, they're emptying it of its power. That's why Paul and Barnabas go to Jerusalem. That's why they're willing to fight. This is a gospel issue. The future, the viability of the church hangs in the balance. And so they go to hash it out. What does gospel plus theology look like in our practice? Friends, we fall victim to this all the time. Spending time with friends at the church, some of them deeply connected, some of them loosely connected. And you know what it's like to struggle spiritually, to fall off the spiritual cart at times. That's why we have a church community and we covenant together, helping each other when we do fall and stumble. Someone needs to help pick me up. And I've encountered these theologies that some of my friends embrace, like, I have to get this right before I enter into the doors of the church. And my heart breaks over that because that's gospel plus theology. That is saying, I have to get this thing worked out by myself in order to be acceptable by God. That's not the gospel. That's a false gospel. The gospel says you come as you are. You can't clean yourself up, and I'll do the cleaning, Jesus says. Just look unto me. I'll take care of the mess. You can't. You're hopeless. So just plead with friends. Just come. Come be a part of the body. I don't care what you're doing, what you're caught up in. You can't fix it by yourself. You need Christ and his people to help steer you on the narrow way. We fall victim to this all the time. Do you know what it is to run on the spiritual treadmill in life? To exert, to make yourself acceptable before God based on how well you witness to others or how well you are reading your Bible in a year? These are important things. These are spiritual disciplines. However, they don't contribute to our salvation. They flow out of our salvation. And some of us are running on the spiritual treadmill, and I would include myself there. I'm often a performance-driven pastor. I like to work hard, but sometimes I can get obsessed with my work, and suddenly Christ's work fades. Are you on the spiritual treadmill this morning? Paul confronts Christians in Galatia, oh foolish Galatians, having begun by the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? We often buy into the gospel plus theology. God just needs a little help, so, so I'm going I'm to add my own efforts, self-reliance. Gospel plus is legalism following laws to make ourselves presentable to God. My wife, Laura, once shared a story from her background that is burned into my memory. My wife, Laura, I've shared some of this, grew up in a context of smothering legalism. So yes, they would preach the gospel, but they would preach a whole lot of other moral 
imperatives along with that. If you danced, if you wore pants, if you wore jewelry, you weren't going to heaven. All of these things that were added on to the gospel. And she, we, like peeling back the layers of an onion, have been peeling back legalism from her heart in particular over the years. She has this one memory of a Sunday morning visiting a church that she was familiar with, was connected to. And there was a woman in that church who was an elementary school teacher. And in her elementary class, she was teaching the kids about American Indian heritage. And so she had a friend who was an American Indian come in and show the kids, show the students an American Indian dance just to kind of show the the cultural heritage, to learn a little bit about the history of this country and who was here. Well, the newspaper came in when they heard that this person was going to teach an American Indian dance, and they took a couple photos, and those photos were in the paper. My wife, Laura, goes to church that next Sunday, and the pastor called this woman up. With newspaper in hand, the picture of her and the students practicing this American Indian dance and castigated her for dancing. Because according to that church context, dancing was a no-no. And my eight, nine-year-old wife sees that, remembers that. What is that teaching her? Law, legalism, and it empties the gospel of its power. Legalism is lethal. It suffocates people from spiritual life. On the other hand, the gospel is liberating. It frees people and it gives them spiritual life and breath and hope. What a hope it is that your salvation and your sanctification rests on the grace of God working in and through you, not on your self-reliance. This was a gospel issue, and Paul and Barnabas were ready to go to the fight. They were ready to go to the mat for this. The first movement we see in this passage is controversy. The second is counsel. Counsel, that is C-O-U-N-C-I-L, people gathered together for a purpose, a meeting that is being held. So Luke spells the details of this family meeting, this council in verses 6 through 12. He writes, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through through them among the Gentiles. So how... Do Christians handle controversy? You see it right here. How are they handling this controversy? Well, number one, they get together in person. 
There's only so much you can do online. God has called us to an incarnational ministry. We must be together in order to do the real work of life and business together. Got to get together. And that's what they do. They, they can call a meeting to work through the stuff. They have a conversation. They speak the truth to one another in love. Critical realities. We've got to speak truth, but we've got to bring it in love. Otherwise, it's not heard. So they speak the truth to one another in love. Notice what Peter does. He says, look, you yourselves know, for I have just told you, Acts chapter 10, he relayed to them the, the whole conversion of Cornelius, the Gentiles, and his household. Because they were, they called him to task when they heard about this. And he said, they received the Holy Spirit just like we did. It's the confirmation of their legitimate salvation. He's like, I've, I've already told you this. And here you are trying to go back to your legalistic ways. So, so, so Peter's speaking truth to them. He's communicated it to them in a way that they can hear it. He says, brothers, you know. And we also see, how do you handle conflict? Leaders need to lead. Leaders need to lead. What's striking in this passage is how leaders speak. Who's first to speak? Peter. Who's next to speak? Paul and Barnabas. Then who speaks? James. You have key strategic leaders leading out, speaking, help guiding this, converse, this conversation and this congregation ultimately towards health. Leaders need to lead. That's how Christians handle controversy. I am so grateful for the elders at Beacon Community Church. I am a pastor, one of five pastors, one of five shepherds in this church. And I'm grateful for you men that co-shepherd with me because over the last two years, it has been thorny to lead. No matter what you decide about COVID or justice, no matter what you decide, you're gonna catch fire from somebody and to have somebody there with you that you're not just making sort of decisions on your own, my goodness, I'm grateful for you four men that help me. I'm hopeless to do it by myself. Leaders need to lead. And that's what we see here from Peter to James, Paul. And notice Peter, a leader, leads with the gospel. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ just as they will. Not by strapping a yoke on their backs, the yoke of the Mosaic law, because Peter says, we couldn't carry it, our fathers couldn't carry it, there's only one who can carry it. Who carries the yoke? Jesus, perfectly. And only by faith in him is that perfect record appropriated to ours. So when God sees us, he sees the perfect fulfillment of the Mosaic law in Christ attributed to us by faith. That's imputation. We trust in Christ, his perfect record becomes ours. Our sinful, soiled record becomes his. It's a double imputation. It's a massive exchange. We, are, we look like perfect law abiders in Christ. And so Peter's like, look, you, you can't carry that yoke. You can't strap it on the Gentiles. Nobody can. But it is salvation by grace, verse 11. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ just as they will. Friend, maybe you're here today 
and you've never heard the gospel, can I share it with you today? The gospel is the good news that though you are fallen and I am fallen, all of us fall short of the glory of God. All of us fall short in that measuring stick of perfection before God. All of us. But God in his mercy wasn't content to leave us in our fallenness and brokenness. He sent his son Jesus to live the life that we failed to live and then to die the death that we deserve to die on the cross in our place. And he didn't stay dead. He was resurrected from the grave, vindicated in his innocence, and all who trust in him have a perfect record. It's appropriated to our lives by faith. You can't earn, you can't achieve, you can't bite, scratch, and claw your way into acceptability before God. You can only receive it by faith. This is the gospel. It is a gift. That's what grace is. You can only believe it, receive it. You can't work for it. Would you trust in that grace? I had a recent conversation with a friend who was not a Christian, but I was praying for him that he, that he would. And just at the end of the day, said, what, what hope do you have at the end of your life that, that, that God will accept you into eternal bliss? He said, you know, I, overall, I mean, I think I've been a pretty good person. So he was banking on God's scales of morality at the end that his good would outweigh the bad. But it's based in a false notion for one deed, one act of sin is sufficient to tip the, fails, the scales away from our favor. And we come, come up short wanting. There's nothing good that we could do to make ourselves acceptable. Only by faith in Christ. Only by faith in Christ. We have controversy. We have counsel. The third movement is clarity. Verses 13 through 19. We see the counsel work toward a point of clarity based on the scripture. After they finish speaking, James, another church leader, this is the brother of the Lord Jesus. James the apostle, the brother of John, has already been killed by Herod. Here, this is James, the brother of the Lord, becomes the leader of the Jerusalem church. He says, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that is Simon Peter, another name for him, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it was written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from old. James is leading, isn't he? He's leading at this council. How's he leading? Through the power of the scripture. He's just simply pointing people's eyes to the scriptures. If you're an elder in here, how do we best lead God's people? By pointing their eyes to the scriptures. For that is where the power is. And what scripture is he pointing to? Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. Amos, who has this glorious promise that God will come and rebuild the temple or the tent, the tabernacle that has been destroyed. What does he mean by that? What is the tent or the tabernacle? Friends, it's the dwelling place of God. It's the place where you went to gain access to the Lord. And it was shattered in the Old Testament because of idolatry and disobedience, but there's a promise that it will be rebuilt. How will it be rebuilt? What does Jesus say in the Gospel of John chapter 2? 
destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And the religious leaders of the Jews are like, what? It has taken 46 years to build this temple. How are you going to do that? And then John gives us a little parenthetical note. It wasn't the physical temple he was talking about. He was talking about the temple of his body. So how is the temple, the tabernacle, the tent, it's all the same thing. It's the dwelling place where we gain access to God. How is it going to be rebuilt? Through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there, that tent is the ultimate access point that we have with God. Who's the we, though? Jew and Gentile alike. Per Amos chapter 9 here. The Gentiles who are called by my name have a home in the tent of the Lord. The tent of David. The predecessor of the Lord Jesus. It will be rebuilt through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And Jew and Gentile have access to God, to his dwelling through that tent. What a glorious reality. We have access to God through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Praise God for that. Full and free access. James has this conclusion, verse 19. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. In other words, let us not put a yoke upon them that they never can bury. He's offering them freedom in Christ, who says in Matthew chapter 11, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. A passage many of us perhaps are familiar with, but it's a wonderful invitation, isn't it? It's just a, Jesus is offering us an exchange. Hey, you take, I'll take that yoke, you take mine. Because in mine there's liberty, there's freedom. That's what he's offering us here through the gospel. That's what James is saying. Let's not strap a yoke on them. Let's not trouble them anymore. Let them walk in the freedom of Christ. So are you on the spiritual treadmill? You know that little magnetic button that keeps you? You just need to pull that out. Walk in the freedom of Christ. Get off the treadmill. Controversy, counsel, clarity. The fourth and final movement in the passage is concession. Concession. This may make us feel a little bit uncomfortable, but let's, let's work through this. As James, the brother of the Lord Jesus and leader of the church, recommends not troubling the Gentile Christians with the yoke of circumcision, he adds this concession in verses 19 through 21. He says, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. So notice the concession he's making here. We should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. You don't need to be circumcised. You've got to become Jewish. But he does encourage adherence to a couple hot-button dietary prohibitions, doesn't he? We can't read over this. We can't duck this. He's encouraging them to abstain from food polluted by idols. That is meat that was sacrificed as a cult ritual outside a pagan temple there would be leftover meat, and then what do we do? Can you eat it or can't you eat it? Well, here, what James is saying, for now, let's abstain from it. 
But as we know, keep reading your Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Romans chapter 14, Paul says, you have liberty here. You may eat, but be wise with whom you eat and whose conscience might be, conscience might be troubled by that. That's for another sermon. But here James is saying, let's abstain for it from now, for now. Abstain from eating what has been strangled and from blood. What in the world is going on here? Well, what had been strangled, those are animals who were killed but not drained of their blood. And in a Jewish mind, you did not eat the blood of an animal, for the life was in the blood. This is the prohibition throughout Leviticus. I've just finished reading Leviticus over the last month. And it's a slog to get through that, but it's, it's healthy for us because it all is pointing to Christ who fulfills all of the Old Testament sacrificial system. Leviticus 17, verses 10 through 12, if any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, no person among you shall eat the blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. So the question is, why the concession? Why is James saying, hey, we don't got to strap a yoke on them, but let's be careful with some dietary things. Why would he do that? Why does he feel the need to add this requirement? Well, Luke gives us some insight in verse 21. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogue. In other words, there are Jews who become Christians who gather every Sabbath in the synagogue and they hear the Old Testament expounded and proclaimed. They're hearing these Mosaic laws constantly proclaimed. That's their context. Be patient with them. Their understanding is growing, but too much, too soon will be counterproductive. That's what James is saying. Be patient with them. In other words, don't rip off this Band-Aid too fast because it will cause more damage. So he's, he is exercising pastoral sensitivity here. He got rid of the big one, circumcision, which was the mark of the covenant community, but he eases on some of the dietary things that were really hot-button issues to give Jews who become Christians who are still stooped in the law deeply some time to grow in their understanding. Friends, it's wonderful pastoral wisdom, isn't it? You see... You and I can be all right and all wrong at the same time. What do I mean by that? We can be all right in our doctrine, in our theology, in our truth, and what we're coming to somebody, but all wrong in the timing and the delivery of it. This is what speaking the truth in love is all about. Sometimes it requires patience. If you're discipling a new Christian, you probably have a laundry list of things that you want to work through. Is it wise to break out the spiritual bazooka and go after all of them? No. You're going to discourage that dear brother or sister who's new in the faith. So what are some of the top tier ones that you got to get right? Well, you got to get the gospel right. you got to get Jesus right. And then work through some of the other tiers as well. Be wise and pastorally sensitive as you disciple people. Don't take it all at once. It's one of my greatest lessons as a young pastor who's becoming an old pastor. Just be patient with people. 
God's not finished with them yet. Daddy's not finished with you yet. You don't have a microwave spirituality. You're a slow cooker, and so are they. Be patient. Get the top things right. Get the gospel right. Get Christ right. And, and, and the other things, will, they'll fall into place. So I think James is he's exercising some spiritual wisdom, some pastoral sensitivity here. It takes tremendous effort to both guard the gospel purity and gospel unity. And James here with this concession is seeking to guard gospel unity, to keep people together so they can be in that community where God works out our faith and our maturity. For if you rip off the Band-Aid too quick, people are going to jump ship. And so that's, he's trying to keep them in together. There's no greater way to reinforce both gospel purity and gospel unity than celebrating the Lord's Supper. As we celebrate the Lord's Supper, which we have the opportunity to do this morning, what are we saying? We are upholding gospel purity through the bread and the cup. We're saying it is the broken body of Christ, the shed blood of Christ that grants us access to God only by faith in him. So as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're speaking doctrine. We're upholding the purity of the gospel, but we're also upholding the unity of the gospel because it's called communion, meaning we do it together. So part and parcel of celebrating the Lord's Supper is self-examining, saying, hey, am I in right relationship with the people in my church family? And if, in fact, there are some issues that you need to take care of, we need to abstain, seek to make those things right, and then come back to the table. So I ask you to examine your relationships with people in your church family. Are there things that need to be addressed and talked through? Do that, then come back to the table. If you're a believer in Christ, we welcome you to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning. If you're not yet a believer in Christ, we're so glad that you're here. Our church exists to help you find out who Jesus is and put your faith in him. We just ask that you would abstain this week, have a conversation with a Christian here, with one of the elders. We'd love to walk alongside you, that you might come to trust in Christ as Lord and Savior, and then enter communion at his table. I'm going to pray, and then after I pray, we'll prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we're, thank we're so thankful for your grace in our lives, that it is by your perfect work that we can know you and have relationship with you and worship you. Not by our own efforts are we saved. Lord, would you reveal to us the things that we trust in, our own effort to be acceptable, the ways that we're running the spiritual treadmill. Father, forgive us. Teach us, Lord, to trust in Christ alone. I pray for some here who are not yet Christians, who perhaps are trusting in their own good deeds, their own morality, that perhaps the scales at the end of time will tip in their favor. Lord, your word teaches that, that it, they won't. One deed is enough to separate us from you. One deed, one sin. But in Christ, the whole mountain of our sin is taken away. Father, help us to press on with one another, to make every effort to exert ourselves to maintain the purity of the gospel and our unity in the gospel for your sake and the good of others. In Jesus' name, amen.